Today, we have three big questions. Can you lose your faith? How do you find rest? And who in the world wrote the book of Hebrews? Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, and this is Brandon, and we are pastors here in Santa Cruz, California at Gospel Community Church. Mm. Welcome. Mm. Like, subscribe, comment. Yeah, I'm glad you're here with us. Reading through the New Testament, uh, hopefully you're on the reading plan and you're up to date um, tracking with us. If you Mm -hmm. haven't listened to the Old Testament episodes, if you're new to this, make sure you go back and listen to the Old Testament. The whole idea is you can go through and have a teaching each week on the New Testament and the Old Testament passage. So we're coming sooner and sooner to the end of the the New Testament here. So it's been been fun to journey through this. So we're in a section of the New Testament known as the Catholic Epistles. Mm which is highly offensive to me as a Protestant. But the idea is not that they're for Roman Catholics, but that they are um, for general church use. So Catholic means Mm -hmm. universal. That's Mm -hmm. the idea. So they're not for a specific church, like a book like Corinthians or Galatians, but they're for general church use. Mm -hmm. Now, some of them may be a little more specific than we know, so we'll look at that. But definitely some of them are more general. Mm. So Hebrews, James, the Peters, the Johns, all those ones are, are more Catholic or general epistles. Mm. But we're, we're in a big one today. We're in the book of Hebrews. Mm-hmm. So this isn't so much a letter probably as a sermon or a bunch of sermons that have been sort of stitched together. Mm-hmm. Homilies, as many people call them. But, you know, we know that it's a sermon. And it's a super important book when it comes to understanding how the Old Covenant and the New Covenant relate together. Right. So we're going to see a lot of that interplay and how Jesus is better and gives us something better than the Old Covenant. Very cool. So, good book. Here's a big question. Who wrote it? Who wrote it? Well, it's interesting, right? So, for a long time, people would ascribe it to Paul. I mean, there's kind of been everything. Like, everyone's been suggested. Like, Mother Mary has been suggested. Uh, Priscilla (laughs) of Priscilla and Aquila fame. Like, so some people say this is the one book written by a woman. It's definitely not written by a woman because in chapter 11, he, he uses the masculine personal pronoun. Mm-hmm. So that's that would exclude a woman. I'm sorry for all these who hoped in that. There's been suggestions what if they changed, of, you know, just changed. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's move on from that. <laughs> Don't want to go there. So some of the main suggestions have been Paul, Luke has been a big suggestion, Barnabas, and even Martin Luther's suggestion of Apollos. Mm. So to understand kind of why different people have been put forward as suggestions some of the characteristics of this author is one, he has, he seems to have a Pauline influence. So a lot of his theology seems to be very close to Paul and to be shaped by Paul's theology. So maybe this is someone who either is Paul or was near Paul. This is clearly an educated person. He's a very good writer. Um, This is pretty complicated Greek. So it's one of the harder books to understand if you're reading Greek. So he clearly was an educated person. Mm-hmm. He seems to be Jewish because he's assuming a lot of things about Judaism, about the Old Covenant, but he is probably a Hellenistic Jew. Mm. So that's, that's in view as well. And then in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, it was declared to us at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So by that language, he seems to be putting himself in the second generation of believers. Hmm. So he seems to be saying there were those who heard straight from God and those that we heard from. So it's very different from how Paul would refer to it, to his own message. Right. He's all, adamant again and again, I received this directly from Jesus. Right. 
So Galatians and, and Ephesians, he talks about this. So this is someone who was probably shaped by Paul. So n- very few people today believe it was Paul. Mm-hmm. That is that is an option, of course. But the language is so different that there's it just seems like it'd be difficult. And even I mean, you, you read it in English and you're like, this is very different from Paul. Yeah. So could be that he wrote at a different time or he was in a different mood or something. Obviously. But Paul's probably not the best option. Many have pointed to Luke because Luke was, you know, Luke wrote a, the bulk of the New Testament with his two books, Luke and Acts. But Luke also, it seems to be very different from his language as well. Mm-hmm. Now, some people would say, well, he's writing theology versus Luke and Acts' history. So maybe that would account for that. Okay, Luke is a decent option. Less popular today than he used to be. But Luke is a good option because he was close with Paul. He traveled with Paul. So he would have a lot of that Pauline theology instilled in him from hearing Paul again and again and again. So I get that. I think the best options are either Barnabas or Apollos. Mm -hmm. And Barnabas, because Barnabas was a Hellenistic Jew, he he was wealthy, right? He may have been very, very educated. He traveled with Paul, obviously. Mm -hmm. So he was heavily involved in Paul's ministry. So he seems like a good option. In fact, there's a, there's a mention, I forget where it is, I didn't write it down, but where he talks about the need to encourage each other. He wants to encourage them. That's what Barnabas' name means. So a lot of people like that. Oh, he's son of encouragement. And he's talking about encouraging them. Maybe that's a little bit of a stretch, but it's interesting. Now, Apollos, we see him in Acts chapter 18. And in verse 24, we see that he's, he's mentioned as being someone who is eloquent and powerful. So Apollos was a Hellenistic Jew. And um, he's from Alexandria, and he was powerful with the word, and he was discipled by Priscilla and Aquila hmm. to kind of refine his theology, and he was a bold defender of the faith. So he fits a lot of the descriptions, right? Eloquent, competent in scriptures, a Jew, and a Hellenistic Jew. Hmm. So that was Martin Luther's suggestion. A lot of people today like it. I really like it. Mm-hmm. But I'm torn between Barnabas and Apollos. I just like Barnabas. You know, I like Barnabas a lot. He's a, he's a cool dude, underrated. So I'm like, that'd be cool if he if he wrote this. But I think those are probably the best options. But of course, those are options that don't have, you don't have like a direct statement here. Right. That's the hardest thing is that it doesn't say who wrote it. So we just don't know. We just don't know. Mm-hmm. So we got we to gotta be honest about that. We can't be overly adamant or dogmatic about our opinions. Right. It's just uh, not Priscilla. It's not Priscilla. <laughs> don't, don't. We can know that for sure. So uh, who was it written to? Well, it was written to the Hebrews. Obviously. <laughs> All of them. We don't know the exact <laughs> o- audience. Again, it's, it's a more general epistle probably, and it was probably to Jews somewhere, Messianic Jews somewhere, because the earliest texts of this book contain the title to the Hebrews. Mm. So it, again, that, that may not have been original, but it's, it's put very early on. The earliest manuscripts have that. So it's a good indicator it was written to Hebrews or Jews. Awesome. And about when was it written? Um, again, you, you got to determine based upon who you think wrote it partially, but there are some hints of this. It, it was quoted, Hebrews is quoted in a book called first Clement <clears throat> written by Clement, an early leader in Rome. And it, that book was written like mid nineties, mm-hmm. late nineties AD. So that means Hebrews was probably written before, well, had he written before that, obviously. And I think also he refers to the sacrifices throughout the book as if they are still going on. Hmm. So if, if you're gonna if you're gonna make an argument as you will against the sacrificial system, one of the easiest arguments you could make if you were after 70 A.D. and the destruction of the temple would be to say, 
look, God's already made these obsolete because they're no longer in existence. Right. So why would he never say that? Look, we, you can't even perform these sacrifices anymore. The temple's gone. Right. It's a pretty easy argument to make. Instead, he speaks, like, for example, in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, right? He sa- he's talking about how these sacrifices are continually offered every year, and they cannot make perfect those who draw near. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Right, so that would be pre. So, so, like, again, why don't, why don't you just say, if you're after 70 AD, they're not being offered? So right. probably the 60s is a good guess, mm-hmm. but we don't know. No, no, for sure. Interesting. Cool. The main theme? I would say the, the supremacy, uh, or I should say the superiority of the new covenant. The yeah. superiority of the new covenant. So he's going to focus a lot on the supremacy of Christ and Christ's superiority, but the kind of the big idea is why the new covenant is better and, and why it's replaced the old covenant. 100%. And how those work together. Yeah. And how is it outlined in the book? So chapters one and two, we see the supremacy or the superiority of Christ to the angel angels. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is superior to the angels. Chapters 3 and 4, Jesus is superior to Moses. Mm-hmm. He's going to compare Moses and the Mosaic system. Chapters 5 through 7 is Jesus, our high priest. Mm-hmm. Really, the idea of high priest goes all the way through chapter 10, but 5 and 7 focus a lot on the high priesthood. Chapters 8 through 10, the superiority of the new covenant. Mm-hmm. Chapter 11 is the famous faith chapter. Yeah. So we'll call it the strength of faith. And then chapters 12 and 13, practical encouragement. So cool. he ends like so many do with good practical thoughts on how to live life. Awesome. And today we're going to be focusing on chapters 1 through 6, right? Yeah, 1 through 6. And one of the big issues that we'll, we'll look at at the end is these statements in Hebrews about losing your faith yeah. or the danger of falling away Right. that have caused so much, yeah, so many questions, so much concern. I know a lot of people have asked me about these passages in yeah. their own life. Awesome. Let's get into it. All right, chapter one, Jesus is superior to the angels. So I love the opening of Hebrews. He doesn't mess around. I'm, whoever received this this letter first knew who was writing it. Mm-hmm. So he's, apparently he's influential enough that he doesn't feel like he has to state his name. But, um, but he doesn't open with his name. He opens with this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Hmm. So the revelation of God came at, in the past through the prophets. Now it comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything focuses and revolves around him. And this sort of sets us up for the old covenant, new covenant hmm. distinction, yep. right? And why one is superior to the other. So Christ is the word of God. Mm-hmm. John 1.1 1, 1, He's the communication of God mm-hmm. to us. He's the central way that God reveals his will, his nature, his character to us. And so he, he makes that a big focus. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What a beautiful picture. Christ is constantly holding all things together, letting this created world continue by his word. Mm-hmm. That's how powerful the word is. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he's sat down and speaks to his finished work, right? He's completed it. So he's sitting down, he's resting from his works in, in a sense. And then verse four points to his superiority to the angels, which is the first argument in Hebrews. It says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is excellent, is more excellent than theirs. Hmm. So through the rest of this section, he's going to be comparing 
angels to God and showing how the status given to Christ is so much more superior than to the angels. Mm-hmm. And so he, there's a heavy focus on quoting the Old Testament in Hebrews. Um, Psalm 110 comes up a lot. So that's a, that's a big focus as well. But this is one of the densest books in terms of its Old Testament quotations and allusions. Oh. So he's, he's very much focused on how the Old Testament relates to the New. So it's instructive for us. We see the first warning passage in chapter 2, um, the, the beginning there. Uh, verse 3, you know, he says, basically the idea is if, if you know, people were judged for not following this message given by angels, then verse 3 says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Oh. Right. So we have to take seriously what we've been given. This message is incredible and powerful, and it can't be taken for granted. Yeah. You, you have to respond in the right way to it. Um, go, let's go into verse 8. So he says in verse 8, the second half of verse 8, it says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, to Christ, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Hmm. So we see not everything is is under his control in terms of being fully in line with his his revealed will, right? There's still rebellion against God. Yep. But he is in control of everything. And this he was he was crowned um, because of his suffering so that he could taste death for us. Yeah. So that he experiences of death so that we don't have to. Mm-hmm. So this is that penal substitutionary idea coming up again here. Mm-hmm of Christ standing in our place. Uh, verses 14 and 15 speak that same idea. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Mm. So he tastes of death so that death is destroyed. He, he takes away the penalty that leads to eternal death and therefore destroys the power death holds over us. Mm. And verse 15 is, was so good. And it's been in my heart a lot through the COVID season, right? It says, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Mm. The the fear of death, and we saw this on display for a couple of years, right? Still do, still do, uh, three years in or whatever it is. People that are enslaved by the fear of death. Right. For us, I mean, I understand why, why fear of death enslaves people. I, I have great sympathy for our world mm-hmm. because they believe that this is all they have. Mm-hmm. And in a real sense, that's true. Right. Right. For us, the suffering in this life is temporary and the joy is permanent. But for those who reject God, it's the joy that's temporary and the suffering that's permanent. Right. So this is, this is all they have um, before they turn to Christ. And so I get why they would hold on to that. But here we see that Christ wants to destroy the slavery caused by that fear. Right. That would cause us to abandon, you know, uh, our reason and our, uh, focus on what is good and true Mm -hmm. in order to get more safety and to avoid death. Yeah. And so of course we, I think all of us as Christians have to reflect on that season and how, how we stood up under that test, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe, you're listening and you, you're stirred up by what I'm saying, um, then that might be a pointer that, that God is God wants you to reflect on that. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. I mean, I know there's times when I've heard people say something and I get really offended and I go, wait, wait, 
why did I, when did I get offended by that? Maybe I need to think about my life and, and really reflect on that because that's a pressure point, you know? Right. Yeah. So anyway, so I think that's, that's just a, a great reality. If, if God has destroyed the power of death through Christ, we, sh- we shouldn't, we shouldn't let our lives be controlled mm-hmm. by the fear of death. Yeah. It makes no sense. Yeah. So let's, let's be bold followers of Jesus and realize that death is coming, but Christ has already won the victory. Hmm. Chapter three, we see the shift from Christ as superior to the angels to Christ being superior to Moses. Hmm. So again, we have one of these um, warning sections here. We don't want to get into all the reasons why Christ is greater than Moses. We see, you know, he's a son, not a servant, all those kinds of things. But verse 12, we'll focus on this. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Hmm. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So be careful, right? Be careful for yourself, for others. Watch out for what's in your heart, whether it's, it's you know evil, unbelieving, it's hardened against God. Mm-hmm. And keep warning each other as long as you have an opportunity. Keep building each other up to make sure that you're not hardened by sin. Mm. It's so easy to to fall into that. And so throughout Hebrews, we'll see these warnings because Hebrews was given to not only give theological clarity, but also to point to the need to endure mm-hmm. and to be ready for the, the temptations that are going to come that would lead us away from, from God. Mm-hmm. So these warning passages are given for our benefit. And we'll look at more of that in chapter six. <clears throat> chapter four speaks here of the idea of rest, right? So chapter four, verse one, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear that lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So we're, he's encouraging us to push on to the rest that is promised to us in Jesus. And he speaks to the, the, the Sabbath day a little bit. In context here, he's talking about the rest that was supposed to come after the ministry of Moses. Mm. So when Joshua leads them into the promised land, um, he's supposed to give them rest, right. but it doesn't come fully. And it's, it's funny, the language here, so going on to verse 8, where it says, if Joshua had given them rest. In Hebrew, or in, in Greek, Joshua and Jesus is the same oh, name. <laughs> so it's, it's very confusing if you translate this, because you'll immediately say, Yeshua, oh, that's Jesus. But it's clearly speaking about Joshua, right? right? Verse 8, so for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Mm. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work, his works as God did from his. So there's a rest that we're still looking for. Mm-hmm. This life is always going to be a little bit restless, a little bit dissatisfying because there's a rest ahead. Right. But we rest in the finished work of Christ, that he did what we couldn't do. He paid the price for us, but also gave us his righteousness so that we can now rest from our works, rest from our our striving to be holy mm-hmm. and, and to merit something from God. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. not the way we work anymore. Exactly. So we rest in his finished work. And then he goes on... Um, let me see it in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. That's funny. The language there strive to rest. <laughs> Those seem very different, right? <clears throat> but we have to take a look at our lives and make sure that we are living in a way that we are preparing for the future rest. Right. 
Um, for the word of God is living and active, verse 12. Sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hmm. So the word of God is what is so key here, and the word of God is able to reveal to us who we are, hmm. to to reveal the intentions of our hearts yeah. so that we can correct those, so we can repent of sin hmm. and strive for obedience to God. So a great, another great passage on the word of God and its ability to pierce directly to our heart and to reveal who we are. Yeah. It's a, it's a mirror and it's a scalpel. So in 414, there's the shift to the high priest focus, mm -hmm. right? Which is going to kind of dominate the rest of the book. And, and we see some of the, the language he's using here, which is interesting. Great, great encouraging passage, right? Verse 14, he says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So that passing through the heavens reminds us of what we saw in the tabernacle, how the different rooms, right? You go from the floor to the first, the holy place, to the holy of holies. It's this progression into the heavens. Right, closer and, to God. Right. Yeah, and Christ has passed through the heavens, not just figuratively, but literally. He's gone to right. the throne of God, intercedes for us. He can sympathize with our weakness. He's been tempted, yet he's been faithful. He hasn't sinned. And then, so verse 16, the conclusion is, we let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can boldly go to God knowing that because of Christ's intercessory work as our high priest, he wants us to come to him yeah. and he receives us as uh, forgiven children mm -hmm. of his. So chapter five goes into a lot of the high priest stuff. We'll focus on this more next week as we get to chapter seven, which is the Melchizedek comparison in, in detail. Super interesting passage. But we do see some of the things here. We see that, you know, uh, Christ is not just a human priest. He's also divine. And so that makes up for the weakness and the failures of human priests. Right. And he was taught obedience, right? So verse eight, chapter five, verse eight, although he was his son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. Again, not saying that he was sinful and then was made perfect, but that he's been completed. His work is completed as the idea of perfection. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Hmm. So he's a superior high priest. He's a better high priest, the one that we need who's able to save us right. eternally. Now, I want to focus in with the time we have remaining to focus on the chapter 6 of Hebrews, which is one of the most, probably the most famous warning passage of Hebrews and raises the most questions about, can I lose my salvation? Yeah, we right? get this all the time in pastoral ministry. All the time. Yeah. So many conversations on this passage, and, um, and this is a challenging one. So the question is, is that what he's saying? Is that what he's saying in this passage? Now let's start in verse 4. This is sort of where it gets challenging. Chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word to come and the powers or the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So one of the questions here is, well, is the person he's talking about, mm -hmm. it, is this person saved and then falls away? Because no one doubts that there's a, you're cut off, at, you know, in verse six, you're falling away, you're cut off and there's not, there's no longer hope for you. Okay, so that, we can agree on that. The question is, what do these descriptors in verses 4 and 5 speak to? Do they right. speak to someone who was saved or someone who merely looks like they're saved? Right. 
Now, all of these terms are a little bit vague, right? So like tasting of the heavenly gift, sharing in the Holy Spirit, tasting the goodness of the, the Word of God. None of them are explicit conversion language. Right. None of them are clear they were born again. Mm-hmm. Or they had the Holy Spirit living in them. Mm-hmm. Right? None of these are th- are things that are only possible of someone who's a believer in Jesus. Yeah, but they all use language that kind of gets close to that line. It mm-hmm. sounds so similar, and it's interesting to me. I, I think he uses this kind of language for that very reason. Yeah, say this is someone who is so close, so close to being saved, and who gives every outward indication of being saved for a, a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. So if that person who is displaying that outward um, that outward behavior and has been given every chance through hearing the word, through seeing the spirit active, through seeing the, the age to come in the people around them in the church, if that person walks away from God, there's no, there's no more hope for them. Right. They've been given every chance is the idea, and they've walked away from that. Mm-hmm. So this is someone who... So I, if someone leaves the faith in your church, I don't think the response should be, well, that must be them. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't necessarily know. We don't know if they've if they've rejected that fully and if they're going to come back. But this is a severe warning. Is right. the idea here? Take this very very seriously. Right. That and and he says in verse six, right? They are crucifying once again the Son of God <clears throat> to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So they're they're spurning the gift that was given to them right. in a very serious way. Mm-hmm. And so if you reject that gift, there's no hope for you. Now, verses 7 and 8 are so helpful to clarify this. There's an illustration here to show us what he's talking about. He says, verse 7, For a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. So there's certain ground that when the rain falls, it bears fruit, Mm -hmm. it bears a crop. Verse 8, But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So... Does it bear fruit or does it bear thorns and thistles? And that metaphor, right, both have the rain fall on them. Both receive this picture of the blessing of God. Yeah. But what comes out of their life is so important. Right. And it's so similar to the imagery that Christ often uses of a good tree bearing good fruit, a bad tree bearing bad fruit. The idea is the reality of your heart, of whether you have a heart changed by God, is going to be revealed over time. Mm-hmm. It's going to come out. It, the truth is going to be seen, and so, um, so those actions are not what determine whether you're saved, in, right? In the sense, it's it's a reflection of yeah, the true condition of, of your heart. Yep, exactly. Yeah. yeah. If you if you've been saved, then you will be progressively sanctified. Yeah, I think that's a great way to understand this passage. I mean, how discouraging would it be if like you're constantly as a believer in fear of losing your salvation? Yeah. If that's even possible. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. In the logic of all the passages we've seen about predestination is if God's choice was the decisive choice in your salvation, right. then he's the one who's going to bring you safe to the end. Yep, exactly. If, but if it depends on you and, and that your choice is decisive over God's choice, then you can theoretically, logically speaking, you can unchoose God. Yeah. Right? If, if God really cares about this sort of idea of free will that we have, where everyone is completely able to make whatever choice they want to make, right? Libertarian free will, then yeah, it would make sense that you could walk away from God. But as Philippians one six says, right, He who began a good work in you bring will bring it to completion. Yeah, I so. think this, this this passage is also helpful in encouraging the church when people do walk away in their midst and 
it's yeah. like it's encouraging in the church to know that that person just wasn't saved in the first place. Yeah, like First John two nineteen. Yeah. Right, they went out from us because they were not of us. Yeah, exactly. And so it has to become evident, right? You have to see that displayed. Oh, this is the pattern that they were walking in, and it's clear now. Yeah, very helpful. And I also I love how he ends this section because he doesn't just drop that bomb and walk away. He says in verse nine, though we speak in this way, which is a, a hard and heavy way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So he doesn't want to end by saying, yeah, maybe you all aren't saved. He wants to encourage them and say, no, we're confident. We've seen God's work in you, and we're confident that God is, is saving you. Yeah. So don't be discouraged. Amen. So love that ending. And we'll, we'll pick up next week with Melchizedek, this mysterious figure. Really, really interesting, often confused passage, but so beneficial to understand who Christ is. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks for joining us for Daily Gospel. We'll see you next week for the second half of the book of Hebrews.